Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, our panel joins to talk about the state Senate's budget proposal, the growing homeless population while the state moratorium on evictions ends, and Nicole Hannah-Jones' rejection of UNC's offer. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. The Senate has submitted its version of the state budget, and later this month, the House is expected to follow with its own version. Once both chambers have agreed, it goes to the governor's desk later this summer, and if he signs it, it will be the first approved state budget in about two years. So here to talk about some of the highlights in the Senate's plan, I want to welcome Lamicia Whittington of Advance Carolina, Greg Hedgepeth of Substantial Media, and Harold Eustish, a former prosecutor turned defense attorney and vice chairman of the Forsyth County Republican Party. Welcome to all three of you. So glad to have you. And let me open up with you, Greg. One of the prominent features of the Senate's uh, budget proposal is the lowering of the corporate tax rate. And I just want to ask you, what makes this an attractive feature for all concerned in our state? Where does it become problematic, you think? Well, first and foremost, you know, I think it's an awesome uh, attraction for those companies that are looking to our state to come in and do some economic development, right? When we think about some of the SaaS and big tech companies that are on the outskirts and thinking about North Carolina uh, as a headquarters or a home, I think that that corporate tax, that, that lowering tax rate attracts them, right? Problematic, though, is that those folks have to have somewhere to go. Right. And so we begin to think about affordable housing. We begin to think about uh, the increased uh, amount of traffic and infrastructure and all of those things. I think it's certainly uh, an attractive feature for small businesses also that are thinking about upscaling and, and things like that. Let me get you in here, Harold, because um, what Greg is saying is that they have to have some place to go. But um, we have infrastructure dollars that are coming to uh, North Carolina and there will be a place to go, will there not? I think so. There's uh, millions and millions of dollars coming to North Carolina from um, the COVID uh, relief plan that just happened. So a lot of municipalities are getting that money. Um, I think it should uh, hopefully go to some sort of infrastructure, and we'll see if, if, if infrastructure passes in the, at the federal level. Um, I certainly agree that I think it's a great thing for North Carolina to attract businesses. You know, a lot of businesses want some sort of incentive to come to either a city or the whole state of North Carolina. So it's, it's great for our, for our state to have uh, a, lower, a lower corporate tax rate and entice companies to come here because ultimately we're competing with other states to bring some of these big companies here. That's right. And Lamicia, what are your thoughts about uh, that decreasing corporate tax rate? If that decreases, then there, is, there are fewer dollars coming to some of the programs in our state. That's right. That's right. So, you know, I'm definitely in agreement with attracting new business and job growth because historically, you know, North Carolina's job growth is at an all time low. Uh, so we're already in need of additional jobs and additional capacity. But what we also have to think about is the elimination of altogether corporate tax by 2028. Uh, that can 
be negligent uh, if we don't have the correct analysis or the correct studies to know what the impact is long term on the revenue of our state. If we remove money right from corporate taxes that go back into public education, that go back into small businesses, that go back into the budget, what does it mean over long term to remove those taxes? Because that's the benefit, right? So when you have wealthy corporations, they create revenue because of the state, because of the great people of the state. And then when that revenue is taxed, guess what? It goes back into the state's income. It goes back into our public education. So when that's eliminated, where's the budget of the next few years, right? We're already in a deficit, two years behind. Where is that money going to come from? And where's that analysis that our legislators need to provide in order to show a clear path forward as how this budget won't create an impact adversely on rural communities and low wealth populations? Well, there is a surplus that's projected. So there are those dollars. And what do you think about the value of having that surplus and how that weighs against the many needs that um, our citizens are facing? Sure. So uh, when we talk about the surplus, there's $6 billion. But here's the thing. The way the Senate uh, bill is constructed, our state budget, it is actually not clearly uh, advising and guiding how the next five to 10 years would look. So the sustainable funding that could go into COVID relief, that could be allocated to local governing bodies, so our local elected officials, that money is actually not clearly allocated. They're instead trying to absorb part of the $6 billion into rainy day funds, into infrastructure plans, when really they should be including this into the eviction moratorium. Utility moratoriums, helping out landlords, small businesses, especially minority businesses that have been struggling in pandemic and historically, we need a clear plan of this surplus and where it's going, not just to be absorbed because it's federal aid, which means it's supposed to aid the community. So why is the surplus being stored instead of given as aid to the community to also help with the lack of job growth and folks that are facing unemployment at high rates, high uh, rates of uninsured. We have um, close to 300,000 North Carolinians who are uninsured due to joblessness in pandemic. That's where this surplus needs to go is to help all North Carolinians, especially rural communities, because 80 out of 100 of our counties are rural. Greg, let me pull you in again, because what Lamisha is saying is that some of these dollars could go uh, to the services, but there's a, is there another view on this in terms of, the, of uh, being fiscally responsible for our state and using those dollars in a way that's gonna you know, really help out all concern? Well, I'll start by simply giving an analogy, right? You know, I always look at these state budgets and I begin to laugh because it's almost as if, like, you, have, have you guys ever done the team building exercise where it's the balancer and you've got to get people on it and then it, the more people you get on it, the less balanced it is? And so when we start to think about this, I think she said it beautifully, right? Like, there's dollars that are out there that can be allocated to help us. Right. We've got to figure out what we need to be doing with those dollars. And first and foremost, if we're not looking at how we're paying our teachers, uh, beginning to think about those uh, uh, employers that are out there in the service industry, then we already uh, are well behind the eight ball. And so I'll share that I ditto exactly what she said. She said it elegantly. The only thing I'll add is that as we think about that and we do think about this rainy day fund, right, like how do we begin to position our state in a place where as we think about those corporate tax rates going down to attract those other folks, maybe there are dollars that could be allocated or left behind to ensure that we have them for that as well. So it's a balancing act. And, you know, you mentioned uh, teacher salaries. Now, the governor has been advocating for a 10 percent increase for teachers, but this proposed plan only allows for a 1.5 percent. Harold, you know, is that enough for these teachers who've really gone through so much this past year with COVID and are having to return to classrooms? I think the calculus is that the teacher, teacher pay has, has been uh, proposed to be increased by um, 
prior budgets as well. And I think that there's also a bonus given in this budget to teachers. I think it's about $1,000 per teacher. Um, and I think teachers actually, teachers specifically actually get $300 extra. I think state employees get 1000 So that's built into um, to this as well as well as a pay raise. I think what what the what the legislature is trying to do here is keep us solvent. What happened in 2020 and since 2010 really is that the legislature has been fiscally responsible and and because of that we were able to withstand what happened in COVID. So this rainy day fund that we say well we should spend all this money and allocate all this stuff out. Well because we saved money because we were fiscally responsible as a state uh, we were able to withstand uh, uh, COVID and 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 still be uh, still have a surplus. So that's what the what the what the legislature is thinking. They're thinking, you know, let's make sure that if something else happens three years from now, five years from now, we're still in a position to be strong financially. Well, we'll certainly be watching to see what happens in the coming months with regard to the budget. The CDC recently announced the eviction moratorium will be extended to July 30th. But here in North Carolina, our 10-member Council of State voted 7-3 to three to end the state's moratorium on evictions July 1. This, while the National Equity Atlas projects 177,000 North Carolina households are behind on rent. It's around 14% of renters. And breaking it down by race, 65% of those renters who are in the rears are people of color. Before we get to our panel, I'd like to share a statement by State Treasurer Dale Fowell, who is one of the seven Council of State members who voted to end the moratorium. And Fowell said, letting this order expire pushes the power back to the people to make these types of decisions. What was originally an act of COVID now exists solely as an act of the state. Now, property owners can work with tenants on equitable solutions that are unique to each situation without a one-size-fits- all government mandated order. In turn, property owners, especially small property owners, will feel more confident in making more housing available because they know they have a much higher probability of recouping their costs for mortgage payments, property taxes, maintenance, and repairs. Harold, I want to just start off with you. What are your thoughts about that reasoning for ending the moratorium at this point? Well, I think that uh, our state treasurer is right here. Uh, the nexus between COVID at this point and you know keeping this eviction moratorium in place just really isn't there. And, and good on our state um, uh, uh, legislatures and, and our council of state for for getting rid of it. I think you know the the issue is that a lot of small uh, property owners that have people that have tenants um, that are renting from them, the, the tenants are protected by this eviction moratorium, but a lot of those property owners, they rely on that income to pay their mortgage. And a lot of times they weren't protected. And so they're they're put in financial situations where they're behind on their mortgage as well. So it's, it's really affecting a lot of people, a lot more than just the tenants. There are a lot of property owners out there that are really, really hurting because of this. So I, I think it's the right thing to do for North Carolina. And we talk about the homelessness issue. Greg, you know, the moratorium was never about homelessness, even though that's been an offshoot. It's been a, it was about reducing COVID-19 spread. How empowering is this move for both tenants and landlords? Uh, I completely agree that, you know, no one gets into the rental the renter business because I, I am also a landlord uh, to, to have like break even or, you know, behind. But we, we have to really begin to think about, you know, humanization of this thing and the people. 
Um, and then outside of that, now please don't take the statement wrong. There are some families out there that are struggling, that are in need, that absolutely rely on this. But then there are some folks, right? There, there are some people that are, you know, they're, they're milking the system. And, and we've got to find a unique way to balance this thing and, and ensure there are programs now that are out there. I think the North Carolina... Uh, well, there's the HOPE program out a, there. Absolutely, absolutely. That they yep. can apply for. Um, but in the meantime, what happens to uh, these folks who are applying for the HOPE program, waiting for uh, rent to be paid? Landlords are waiting for rent to be paid. You know, what options do they have? And is that the, the state's concern? Lamisha? Yes. So uh, let's back it up a bit. So right now, when I mentioned job growth, North Carolinians are still working, looking for work, and there's not enough job growth to actually get people back into work this year. More than 40,000 people in North Carolina were forced out of the labor market in just five months. Okay. Roughly 56,000. But we have a job 000. shortage. But we have a job we shortage. We have a job shortage. We absolutely do. And so when we talk about the fact that 56,000 jobs like have disappeared, it's a literal job shortage. And as my grandmother used to say, you can't get blood out of a turnip. So expecting for communities who don't have a job, who actually don't have income because our uh, state isn't providing job growth or incentivizing within the state budget, that surplus to support small businesses, to support local economic growth and to support local governing bodies to create job growth, guess what? Folks can't pay their rent. It doesn't matter how much uh, folks, landlords would like it, there's no money. The other side is there is money in the state. When we talk about $6 billion surplus, that's the relief federal aid that can go to supporting not just tenants, but landlords. So why are we placing the burden on the working class that are already the most impacted by these job losses. The, the largest rate of job you know, disappearing is based on franchise workers, folks in uh, fast foods, corporation workers, folks who already lost also health insurance that now have even more health bills because guess what? Over 257,000 North Carolinians lost health insurance last year because of job loss. So again, we cannot get blood out of a turnip and expect for community members to pay money they simply don't have because our state isn't providing the jobs and the revenue growth and the $6 billion surplus in our state budget that could potentially pass should be allocated to support tenants and landlords. Harold, how can we have a sustainable budget? How can we be fiscally responsible, but also humanitarian when our citizen, we have citizens out there who are gonna be on the street and then that, I would think, is gonna contribute once again to COVID spread? Well, I mean, I, I I do think it goes back to jobs, and I think that's what this budget is trying to do is incentivize small businesses to to return um, and and open up their doors to to allow people to get jobs. I think there's 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 been this push and pull between um, uh, people being incentivized to work and and, and whether or not um, some of those jobs that have closed have closed down have been because uh, people just simply haven't returned. To those jobs, and, and then and then those jobs have disappeared because there's nobody to fill them. They won't return to work. Um, so I, I do think this is really a, I think this is about getting people back to work um, and getting people incentivized to work. Uh, I think that's what this budget is trying to do by by lowering not only uh, the corporate the corporate tax but the state income tax as well. Um, and I think that will bring the type of workers to North Carolina that we need, incentivize people to move here. If we look at different states that have lowered um, their uh, income tax, like Texas, or don't have a state income tax like Texas and Florida, um, those states are growing. And so I think that's what North Carolina is looking to do 
and get and get good job growth here. So that that's the way to combat, I think, the humanitarian problem of of people, you know, uh, being evicted potentially. Well, some of this certainly goes back to the budget, and you know, we mentioned the corporate. Uh, tax rate decreasing. Well, it's um, also applying to personal income tax, which is decreasing. Is that going to help this situation? Almost seems like we had this uh, health pandemic, a crisis, and through the crisis, there have been efforts to try to address another problem when the reality is that there need to be individual, transparent, targeted programs to address the growing homeless problem that we have here in our state. And nationwide, what are your thoughts on that, Greg, Lamicia? Well, first and foremost, there's no one-size-fits-all to this, right? You know, the one thing that I learned a long time ago is <coughs> no one owns the future. And so it's up to us to figure out how we innovate, how we create, how we make sure that uh, we're, we're looking at this thing from both sides. Uh, I, I really believe, you all, that there is a, a delicate balance between um, humanitarian and for-profit, right? Corporate and nonprofit, all of those things. And so we've got to find a unique way to where we're helping the people of our state while also not squeezing, and I, and I use that word very lightly, squeezing uh, what could be those folks that are the supporters and the helpers. Does that make sense? And so, you know, I, I, I'm indifferent about this. I really am, Deborah. Well, let, I really well, me, am. Yeah, well, let me get your <laughs> thoughts about it, Lamicia. Well, let's really break down the term personal income tax. Uh, personal income tax support for who? Uh, so personal income tax, here's the thing. Our state budget will already lower and already flat uh, regressive. What does that mean? It means that a flat tax system means that everybody pays the same tax rate regardless of their income, which means the wealthy folks will get more of a tax break and low income and marginalized communities will have to shoulder the burden of more taxes because it's a flat rate. It means everybody pays the same, right? But what does that mean when we break down actual numbers? We can say, okay, personal income tax, it would actually benefit the top 20% of income earners in North Carolina with 74% of the personal income tax going to the top 20% compared to 0% of that to the lowest income earner. So the low wealth, our working class folks get 0% of that tax cut, but the majority goes 74% to the top 20% income earners in this state. So personal income tax benefit for who? And that goes back into when we're talking about COVID disparities, folks now trying to be sheltered in place against this Delta variant. How can they shelter in place when the very working class that will now have to burn the tax cuts, right? They'll have to pay more taxes now are without jobs, but looking for jobs. And on top of it, our, uh, you know, President Biden, Governor Cooper came in, you know, president came in the other week to talk about shelter in place, get more vaccines. Well, how could people do that when there's no statewide uh, evictions moratorium or utilities moratorium? We have to be clear on our messaging and we have to be clear on how we're actually supporting our communities and stop with the gaslighting of terms such as personal income tax when it's only for the wealthy 20 percent. Thank you, Lamicia. Last week, we reported that with just a day to spare before Nicole Hannah-Jones was scheduled to begin a five-year term at UNC Chapel Hill, the UNC Board of Trustees convened a special meeting and voted to offer her tenure after all. We also reported erroneously that she accepted the offer. However, I need to issue a correction and an apology for the misinformation. She did not accept that offer. Hannah-Jones announced this past Tuesday that she will not accept the position and has instead accepted an offer offer to teach with tenure at Howard University. So many people are still talking about this, and we wanted to get feedback from our panel. Note, PBS North Carolina is licensed to the University of North Carolina system. Uh, Lamicia, 
who won, who lost on this one? Wow. First, congratulations. Uh, thank you. And uh, just very proud uh, of author, journalist, and expert, uh, Nicole Hanna-Jones. That's first. Uh, second, when we say who won and who lost, um, when we talk about the the racial impact that was, you know, the war that was waged on that campus, um, the UNC Journalism School, the building is named after Walter Hussman. He pledged $25 million to that journalism school. Here's the thing. Journalist uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones will now take 20 plus million dollars to Howard University. So when you talk about here's a school system, here's uh, uh, the board of governors the like that are in these discussions and say, okay, we're going to take priority of an individual who donated $25 million, who was from Arkansas. And that's how you determine the landscape of your state, the education and the actual thriveability and the diversity and inclusion, but really well-rounded education from uh, an acclaimed journalist. That's what you do, UNC lost. Uh, and they lost big time. And when I look at, and this is the last thing I'll say, when we see uh, journalist Jones as she goes to Howard, her statement of it is not her job to heal, and I'm paraphrasing here, to heal UNC, that is the revolution. It is the recognition that you don't deserve my gifts or talents if you're not going to cherish it and create a hardship on something that I have earned, degree, acclaimed, award winner, go where you are celebrated, go where you can actually invest in the students. Guess what? That is part of what I would consider a revolution. But what does a revolution mean? It means being celebrated for who you are, the gifts that you possess, that it can be passed down to the next generation to be the next Nicole Hannah Jones plus. Harold, Nia, you've said that UNC shouldn't have caved in the first place. What are your thoughts on the, the winners and the losers on this? Well, yeah, UNC lost. I mean, they lost because, you know, they were the Board of Governors, the Board of Trustees was appointed by uh, the Republican legislature to, to uh, promote the values that we want um, at the UNC system, and they didn't do it. Um, they uh, allowed, you know, to me, wokeness to win. Um, I think they were wrong to do that. I think that um, they, you know, you know, first denying her, saying they were going to deny her tenure, and then giving it to her, it certainly looks bad. They lost. Um, and what do you mean by wokeness wins? What I mean by that is, you know, first they were going. I think she, you know, she's a she's political in some sense. I think that the the argument around the sixteen nineteen project isn't about. Um, teaching history per se. I mean, that's fine. I think everybody's for that. But I think it's a, it's about how do we look at our country? Um, and there's one side saying the country is systemically broken, it's evil, it's terrible. And there's another side saying, well, wait, this is a country that is unique to the entire world that is the only country to really have the ability through a constitution to come out of slavery, to come out of all the things that have happened in our country. And that's what makes America great. And so ultimately, there's this battle between two sides. I think that the side of wokeness is saying our country's broken and systemically broken, and the only fix is equity. Um, and so I, I think allowing whatever you think about that argument, allowing the UNC system, allowing that argument to win when, when, when they were sent there by a Republican legislature, I think they lost. Well, let me get your thoughts on this, Greg. You know, uh, Harold has said that uh, some believe that the system is so broken it can't be fixed and that the only thing that might fix it is equity. Well, aren't we ar arguing or aren't we trying to obtain equity? Absolutely. And, and I'll start by, again, uh, 
just simply dittoing what we were trying to say, which is that I'll tell you exactly who won, and it's the students and the future generations of students at Howard University as a professor at a historically black college and university, uh, too often underserved and overlooked. And to have this appointment of both uh, Hannah Jones and Coates says to that school and the students that we're investing and we care about the education that you receive. Uh, who lost? I don't even want to focus on that, but I'll definitely share that the old adage of go where you're celebrated, right? As she said, um, I was told a long time ago, if they don't see the value in you, uh, find your space or create it. Uh, and that's exactly what she did. And so I, I really do believe that as we look at this fight and the fight of so many other uh, uh professors of color at predominantly white institutions and institutions across our nation, what this should say is that we will not be undervalued. We will not continue to be underserved. What we want is exactly what we've asked for, and that is the same assurances, the same securities, and everything else that our education, our knowledge, our experience, our exposure to the world is providing. And as we give that to the next generation, it is certainly important that you value the fact that we're giving it. And is that what's happening as um, several faculty members have left UNC and you and some former trustees have, have published an ad in the Internotus say, you know, we have still been, a we're able to bring in the dollars, we're able to create this talent pool out here, we're strong. Uh, Lamicia, what, do you think a lesson's been learned or do you think anything's going to change in the next six to 12 months? Um, so in terms of like cultural shift, I'll say that's where the change will be. The culture shift will be, as Greg mentioned, when we talk about investment in HBCUs, and I also appreciate uh, the inclusion of the critical race theory in this moment when we talk mm -hmm. about culture shift. And why I say that is when we talk about the education, the information, it is fact that in uh, 1805, 1 million enslaved people were worth $1 million. But in 50 years, that inflation of stock on our bodies went from 1 million to 1 million to 3 million enslaved folks being worth uh, $4 billion. And Lamisha, I have so to apologize for not giving you ample time to respond to this <laughs> because we do have to go. Uh, for now, I just want to thank you, Lamisha Whittington, Harold uh, Eustache, and also uh, Greg Hedgepath for your time today and for your thoughts on Black Issues Forum. I want to thank all of today's guests. We invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.